Today's topic is the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, three, many years ago, I was fortunate enough to have to have to, notice the word, have to fly to Israel to help some customers. I had a friend who had, uh, I was working at this company, we were doing the very first MPEG uh, chipset, the encoders, it was a company called, a startup company called C-Cube, and we, we designed the very first DVD player, in, in a sense, in that company. And uh, he was trying to do the same thing in Israel, and so our company, so I said, look, you've got to talk to my boss and convince him that I have to fly to Israel to help you. He says, no problem. So a few months later, my boss says, hey, they need you to fly to Israel. I said, oh, man, I guess I'll have to do that. So I go to Israel, and I end up in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is uh, right there where you see the big uh, bright, uh, the red spot there. And uh, I thought Tel Aviv was the ugliest city in the world. Hopefully none of you are from Tel Aviv. It's just, it was hideously ugly. Um, and I was working there in a city called Holon, which is right outside Tel Aviv. And every night I would go there, and I would work on my boards and then help him. And then uh, every, every morning I'd help him. And every night I'd go back to the hotel room, and I'd look at the map of Israel and go, I want to go to Jerusalem. I wonder how I can go to Jerusalem. I really want to go to Jerusalem. So next day I was talking to my friend Asher, and I said, Asher, I really want to go to Jerusalem. I don't know how to get there because we've been working late, and um, and it's, it's across on the other side of the country. He said, oh, yeah, let's go for dinner there for tonight. I said, it's on the other side of the country. He says, yeah, yeah, with traffic maybe 45 minutes. You see, from one end of the country to the other, it's less than 30 miles, okay? I mean, you probably drove that far just to get here today, some of you, right? Uh, And then we get to Jerusalem, and it's this tiny, tiny city, the inner city of Jerusalem. I mean, it's beautiful. It was was definitely far better than uh, Tel Aviv, and really nice climate, too. You know, Tel Aviv was hot. Jerusalem was just pleasant. And uh, we noticed that the whole old city of Jerusalem, the old wall, is about three-quarters of a mile wide. That means uh, with traffic, that's the uh, donkey carts and the mules and all that, and the beggars, uh, maybe, what, eight minutes to cross from one end of tele- uh, Jerusalem to the other end? Now, of course, Jerusalem has currently spread all over, but in the days of Jesus, it was even smaller than that, and it was about, uh, in fact, the wall was about right there. Now, it turns out that my uh, saying, telling my friend, hey, I really want to see Jerusalem, he actually organized a tour for me, and the, the next weekend was Yom Kippur, Kippur, so they were not working, and he said, hey, I can get a driver for you. He won't be Jewish, because He'll be celebrating Yom Kippur. I can get you a Muslim driver to drive you around. I said, that sounds great. So for two days, I had a personalized chauffeur drive me around uh, Jerusalem and Nazareth and all that. It was was a lot of driving when you go north because it's longer north-wise. But when we got to Jerusalem in the tour part of it, he took me to this one room. And uh, in this room, there, were these, uh, there was this big mound, a blue mound, and it was the Star of David all over it. And people, there were p- tourists, you know, always tourists, but there were also a lot of Jewish people in there. And they, uh, they had to wear a funny cap. I mean, I had to wear a funny cap. They were wearing those caps. I had to wear a cardboard cap on my head. Uh, my head is a lot bigger than most people's head. My wife tells me that. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, but anyway, so it didn't fit. So I looked like Laurel and Hardy or someone. And I was wa- up there, and I'm balancing this cap. And I look at this place, and people are like, oh, I'm not praying, but they're very reverent towards this place. And I said, well, what is this place? He said, oh, oh this, uh, this is the tomb of David. And it's actually outside this old city wall, outside the new city wall, in fact, because that was where David was born. I mean, bur- Buried. Now, as I mentioned last time, I was born at a very early age in Africa. 
in Ghana. And uh, my father was a professor in physics. And so I grew up, and we were Christians. We date our heritage back to St. Thomas, who came to India in 51 AD. So, you know, we've been Christians for about 2,000 years. And uh, my, my, uh, my early childhood was spent with Hindus and Muslims in Africa and India and Buddhists and Jains and Sikhs and Zoroastrians and, and every sort of religion and, and a lot of atheists. My dad, in fact, used to be an atheist. A lot of my uncles were atheists and a lot of my uncles are communists and still are communists today. Go figure. So... Um, in fact, my, my grandfather, my, sorry, one of my uncles was chairman of the World Council of Churches, which is the most uh, communist, well, it's a socialist uh, uh, organization out there. So I would ask myself, I'm, why am I a Christian? Here I am, I have Christian parents, is that why I'm a Christian? Yet my friends are Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus. Why would I be a Christian? Why should I be a Christian? Am I a Christian because it's true or am I a Christian just because my parents are? And so as a result, I started studying what we call apologetics. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with this. But apologetics does not mean to apologize. It comes from 1 Peter 3.15, which says, Always be prepared to give an apologia to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And that word apologia means defense or explanation. It does not mean forgiveness. It means to defend or provide an argument. And so what is apologetics? Apologetics is the evidence and defense defense of the rational faith of Christianity using facts, logic, history, science, philosophy, reasoning. It's a scientific way of proving that Christianity is true. It's a way that proves Christianity is true for everybody. And you should not believe in Christianity unless it's true. And so I started my ministry called No Blind Faith. Don't forget the no. I was once introduced by someone who says, I'd like to introduce Neil Marmon of Blind Faith. (laughs) Fortunately, the audience all knew me. They go, no, Blind Faith. Uh, Now, in line with no blind faith, we teach some foundational classes. And here is what we teach. One, we teach that blind faith is what? But we teach that blind faith is bad. It's evil. It's dangerous. Now, I don't say it's evil all the time because you could blindly believe the right thing. But it is dangerous, okay? We teach that blind faith is dangerous. We teach that God exists using science. In fact, I have a book out there called Who is Agent X? Basically, the subtitle is Proving God Exists Without Using the Bible. And then we prove that the supernatural exists. In fact, in this book, the, we prove that there are at least 10 dimensions. During, and we use the Big Bang to prove that because atheists accept the Big Bang. And so I'm going to use what they believe. And I say, look, the Big Bang proves that God exists. And not more than that, it proves that whatever caused the Big Bang, because the Big Bang brings matter, time, and energy into being. So whatever caused the Big Bang immediately has to be what? Outside of time not composed of matter, and does not depend on energy. So right away, the Big Bang shows you that whatever caused the Big Bang is what? Immaterial, timeless, and powerful. But the other thing the Big Bang showed us was very important is the Big Bang actually has a concept of there being at least 10 dimensions, if not 11. So uh, we see for, we live in four dimensions, right? Height, length, width, and time. But science says there are six other dimensions at least, if not more, and those are dimensions beyond that. We call those the supernatural dimensions. So science actually shows that there is something supernatural. Science shows that something can create matter, energy, and time out of nothing. So something can manipulate matter. And that something also created six other dimensions. 
And then we prove that the Bible was tr transmitted correctly and is accurate. All this using science and archaeology and history. And as a result, we come to the conclusion that Christianity isn't a blind faith. It's a rational faith built on a solid historical and logical foundation. And that's the principle of my ministry and the principle of apologetics. And if you're not, in, not in, uh, involved in teaching apologetics, I recommend you teach it to your kids. You learn it and teach it to your kids. So let me ask you a very important question. If there was some way that I could prove to you with a high degree of confidence that Jesus Christ actually lived and rose from the dead, would you, if you don't believe it, believe, accept his claims, accept his claims that he is God? If I could prove to you scientifically, historically, accurately, and using reason and logic that he actually died and rose from the dead, would you be willing to make a commitment to at least investigate more further his claims? Because that's what we're here to talk about. First of all, we want to talk about why is Jesus, Jesus different from the other gods and teachers? Did he really exist, and did he really rise from the dead? Let's look at the first one. Why is Jesus different from the other gods? This one is really easy. See, Jesus, unlike all other teachers and starters of religions, didn't come to show the way. He came to be the way. See the difference? In other words, Muhammad, if you didn't have Muhammad, but you had the Quran, you'd still have Islam. Right? If you didn't have Krishna, but you did have Bhagavad Gita, you'd still have Hinduism. Right? But without Jesus, you don't have Christianity. Jesus didn't come to show us the way. He was not a teacher. He came to be the way. It was by his blood that we are saved. That's the fundamental cause. Now, did Jesus really exist? Let's talk about that. A lot of people say, well, Jesus never really existed. He was just a myth. He was, uh, history has nothing about him. Well, here's Cornelius Tacitus, who is not a Christian. He's a Roman, and he's reporting about Jesus. He lived between AD 55 to 117, and he says, Christus, from whom that name had his origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our pro creators Pontius Pilate. And then, of course, there's Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a uh, Roman historian. He was a Jew who defected to the Roman side, and he says this of Jesus. He says, Ananias, a high priest, convened the meeting of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others, and he accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. So immediately we know that Jesus was a real human being, and he had a brother called James. And this has nothing, we, I've not touched the Bible once in doing this. And there are 17 other sources of this, 17 other non-biblical sources that give you all this information about Jesus, like Suetonius, Pliny, Talus, and the Talmuds. Now, without once touching the Bible, I've shown to you that Jesus was a real human being. He had blood. He had flesh. He was a man in history. But... Was he God? Right? Muhammad existed. We don't think he's God. Buddha may have existed. We don't think he's God. Uh, but a lot of people existed and claimed to be God. Right? Muhammad and Buddha never claimed to be God. But uh, Charles Manson claimed to be God. Claimed to be Jesus. Right? Uh, so the question is, why should we care about what Jesus said? He claimed to be God. Why should we care? Was he God? On November 2009, my second daughter, Caroline, was born. We were excited. Her three-year-old sister was excited. But two days later, her heart failed. She had a heart defect that nobody had detected. 
not even the doctors, is my wife and my mom. And nine days later, Caroline died in my arms. It's an amazing thing to have someone die in your arms. We buried her, buried her on a cold, beautiful winter day. And that's her three-year-old sister there at the time. And you see those masses of graves. And you ask yourself, is death our final destiny? Was that the end of Caroline? Is the grave our final home? Pastor McCoy was telling us about his father just passing away on Tuesday. And we sit here at church and we talk about eternal life. But is it true? Or is it just a convenient fantasy that we have created because we are afraid of death? Because death is this horrible, terrible thing that takes people we love away from us. My mother died in 2014. Is it something that separates us from the things that we love? Is this the end of life? Or is it just a convenient fantasy? Maybe you fear death. Maybe you've just lost somebody close to you. Where do you find your hope is the grave our final destiny? One atheist argument against God is, look, what do you tell a child who is dying of a terrible disease? You see him dying there and you say, well, I'm sorry, son, you're going to die. God gave you this disease and it's just tough. And children die. Innocent people die in tornadoes or in war. Is death our death final destiny? Because as Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, and if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain, and we of all people are to be pitied. Jesus claimed to be God, but unless you can prove that he is God, this is a waste of time. We are wasting our time here, and we are of all people to be pitied. And that's not my words. That's Paul's words. But something happened 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, some event happened that changed the course of destiny. Some event happened that completely upturned history. And that was an empty grave. An empty grave that had the body of Jesus and it wasn't there. But you might say, well, how do we know the grave was empty? We are skeptics, and we should be skeptics. Well, how do we, well, we're going to go, so what we're going to do today, today is we're going to become detectives. We're going to put on a detective hat, and we're going to go after this 2,000-year-old mystery. Okay? Um, but first of all, I want to give you a bit of background in, in investigating mystery, and I got this directly from an L.A. cold case detective, my friend Jay Warner Wallace. Right? He was actually in, in the news recently because he solved his most recent cold case. It was, I think it was like a 26-year-old murder case that he, did, that he discovered. And he says, here's what you've got to understand about evidence. There's direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. Direct evidence supports the truth of an assertion directly without need for any additional evidence inference. In other words, if I'm standing here and I see somebody shoot somebody else, that's direct evidence for me. I saw him shoot him. He's the murderer. Direct evidence. He said, we almost solve no cases that way because most people are not stupid enough to kill other people in front of anybody else. <laughs> he says, almost 100% of our cases are solved by circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is evidence that relies on an inference to connect it to the conclusion of fact. Forensic evidence, like a fingerprint at the scene of a crime. 
In fact, most murder case convictions come from that, like from circumstantial evidence like the Lacey and Connor Peterson case. Uh, in fact, people were freed from prison based on circumstantial evidence that proved that he was not at the site, like Michael Morton. So back to the empty grave. Obviously, you were not there. I was not there. So the only way we can study anything in history, in fact, any evidence in history that we study, is always based on circumstantial evidence. So now you might say, well, how do we know the grave was empty? Or as I like to say in the Monty Python version, well, how do you know the grave was empty? Well, let's turn that around. If the grave wasn't empty and if the body of Christ was still in the grave, how long would the story of Jesus Christ's resurrection have lasted? What is the fundamental concept, the crux of Christianity? The fundamental crux of Christianity is not that Jesus Christ came to show us the way, but he came to be the way, and he did that by rising from the dead, right? So what does Paul say again? If there is no resurrection of the dead, right, and Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain, and we of all people are to be pitied. In other words, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christians are poor, pitiful, deluded fools. And this was preached right from the beginning. So let me ask you this, it's AD 33, three months after Jesus had been crucified. You want to stop this purge, this, you want to purge the world of the stupidity of Christianity, and what would be the easiest thing to do to kill the religion? Well, the easiest thing would be go find the body of Jesus and show it to everybody. Now the apostles weren't preaching their story in Rome, were they? They were not preaching the story in Greece, were they? Where were they preaching the story? They were preaching the story in downtown Jerusalem. And the grave would have been right outside downtown Jerusalem. And how many hours of walking would they have to do to get to that grave? Eight minutes. So how do I know that they preached the gospel in Jerusalem? Well, let's look at the Bible. Let's see what happened. Well, remember the first sermon that Peter gave. The first sermon that Peter gave, he gave it to thousands of people. And that year, three th- that day, 3,000 people became Christian, right? What does he say? He says, God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, for God would not allow the Holy One to undergo decay. I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. What tomb is he talking about? King David's tomb, the tomb that I went to 2,000 years later. He said, look, guys, I can confidently tell you that Christ, sorry, I can confidently tell you that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here today. And then he goes on what? He says, but Christ was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised Jesus for life, and we are witnesses of his fact. He's saying, look, here we are in downtown Jerusalem. You know where David's tomb is. You know where Jesus' tomb is. Go check it out. And guess how many people became Christians? 3,000. Now let me ask you this. Let's say a famous actor had died three days ago. I was going to use Kevin Sorbo, but he's a friend. (laughs) So I'm going to use Brad Pitt. (laughs) So let's say Brad Pitt had died and he was buried eight minute walk from here. I think that barely gets you to the freeway, does it? And I come up and I say, we are all going to be pitians. And he has risen from the dead. Now how many of you would become pitians without walking those eight minutes first? Can I see a show of hands? Nobody. Come on. Oh, wait, I thought I saw one there. (laughs) Just because you like Brad, right? No. (laughs) Here's the point, guys. You could have disproved the empty grave in eight minutes. 
and nobody did that. In fact, King, uh, King David's tomb was closer than where we think Jesus may have been buried. See, without the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, there would be no Christianity. Without the empty grave, there would be no starting. But how did the grave come to be empty? Because there are many ways the grave came to be empty. And so before we start that, we have to do this scientifically. So um, a, um, an apologist named Gary Habermas, he's a researcher and professor, he compiled a list of 2,200 sources, and they identified a list of 12 facts which are considered historical by a large majority of skeptical and conservative excuse me, experts. So what he did is he goes out and he interviews all these New Testament scholars, these historians, uh, about who know, understand, and many of them are not Christians, right? And he says, okay, what are the 12 facts that we all agree on, or a majority of you agree on? And these are the 12 facts he came up with. One, that Jesus actually died by crucifixion. Notice, they all agree he existed. Two, he was buried. Three, that his death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope, believing that his life was ended. Four, the tomb was discovered to be empty just a few days later. Five, the disciples had experiences which they believed were literal appearances of the risen Jesus. Six, the disciples were transformed from doubters, afraid to identify themselves with Jesus, to bold proclaimers of his death and resurrection. Seven, this resurrection message was the center of preaching in the early church. Eight, this message was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem where Jesus died and was buried shortly before. Nine, as a result of the preaching, the church was founded and grew. Okay? Not just 12 people. Uh, Ten, Sunday became the day of worship. Eleven, James, the brother of Jesus, a skeptic, was converted to the faith when he believed in his origin Jesus. And twelve, Paul was also converted by an experience when he likewise believed to be an experience of the resurrected Christ. And these are what we call the minimally accepted facts. So based on this, we as detectives, so this is what our witnesses have told us. So based on this, let us go and figure out how the tomb of Jesus became empty. We have two options, right? We have natural means, and we have supernatural means. And we can't jump to the supernatural, right? We see lightning. We can't say, oh, God sent the lightning. He may have created it, but it doesn't mean that he sent it. Why? We know what is behind the lightning. So now we want to go and see what is behind the body of Christ being moved from the grave. And the worst, first easiest thing is that disciples stole the body. I and mean, that's the easiest thing. You know, the disciples said, I want to be remembered for the rest of my life. I'm going to steal the body of Jesus, and we're going to write a gospel. Well, this happens to be one of the easiest claims to disprove. Um, now, while this is not one of the minimal facts, we have good evidence that the tomb was probably guarded by Roman or Jewish guards. Actually, it was probably by, uh, it could have been either of them. Polybius tells us what a Roman guard was. Uh, this is a picture of a real set of Roman guards. It's amazing what the color quality was in 2000 AD. I mean, in, in uh, 33 AD. Uh, so the Roman guards were, were not exactly the kind you'd want to meet on a dark avenue alley, because even if they were having a good day, they thought they were better than you and would uh, do something to take something that you had, right? Well, the problem with the Roman guard system is that if they were guarding something, they had to do it in such a way that they would not let it be taken away, because if they were told to guard something and it was taken away, guess who would die? They would die, right? So they were all there on their honor, and they were guarding it with lies, unless somebody could pay off the guy who, uh, to, so that they wouldn't die, right? And you could pay some people off with a lot of corruption there. Okay, so here we go. Here's how the guard unit would be. There would be a guard. That would be, they would station four guards in a row in front of the tomb, right? And then the other 16, the other 12 of the guards would 
relax in a semicircle. You know, they had sleeping bags back in those days. They're uh, kind of nice ones, too. So they would all lay down, and they, when they went to sleep, they would sleep with their heads towards the inside of whatever they're guarding. So somebody couldn't come from the outside and bash their silly little heads while they were sleeping, right? So they sleep on a certain circle, and every four hours, the four that were guarding the, the item would then move to the right or left, and then the next four would come up. So they'd have four hours on, 12 hours off, four hours on, 12 hours off, and that way they would be rested and ready to guard whatever they were guarding. So here are the 12 guards. They're sitting there in a semicircle. Now, to approach this thing, the disciples, who are fishermen, mind you, not trained killers, would have to do a frontal attack, bash the feet of the people sleeping, if they were all sleeping, make a final frontal attack through the gap that they made, kill the four guards, come inside, grab the body of Jesus, take it, and then escape out again, hopefully dispatching with the rest of the guards with the body of Jesus on their back. Okay, I want you to picture that. Uh, How realistic do you think that is? So there is a tombstone. They move the big stone and go. Well, here's the problem with this theory. Here's the first problem with this theory. The problem with the theory is quite simple. One, Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. Simon was crucified. The first James was beheaded. Second James saw the lie. I won't even go through the whole list. But you can see all these guys died horribly after they stole the body of Jesus and made a claim, the false claim, right? Now, let me ask you this. What sort of idiot would do that? Okay, I got this idea, Peter. Okay, John, go for it. We go in there, we steal the body of Jesus, right? Yeah, great, great. And then we tell everybody he's alive, but he isn't. Well, we tell them, then they will make us famous, okay? And then they'll hunt us down and kill us. Yes, yes, that's true, we will die. But it will be a noble death. For what reason? We're not going to get any sex, we're not going to get any money, and we're not going to get any power. (laughs) Oh, you're right, that is a stupid reason. And I can see them writing the gospel, right? Oh, Mark says, okay, Peter, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have you deny Christ three times and call him Satan. Because, no, have him call John Satan. Why should he call me Satan? The fundamental basis for their death sentences was simply this. We saw Christ die. We saw him rise. We did miracles. And he is God. And none of them said, you know, after this long interrogation and you've been beating me up, I just have one thing to say. I, I was just kidding. I just want to go back and be a fisherman now. Nobody did that. Instead, they doubled up and they said, no, I'm willing to die for the fact that I saw him alive after he died. I won't go through the minimal facts, but there are many things that dispel the minimal facts. Complete refute this, and there are actually four of them. I won't go through this here. Okay, the second possibility is the wrong tomb. Right? Again, remember, we're detectives trying to figure out what's going on. So wrong tomb. So here's the tomb of Jesus and the disciples. First, you know, the Marys go to the wrong tomb, and they go, oh, empty tomb. Oh, my gosh. And they run away, right? Meanwhile, the real tomb of Jesus is over here, right? And so they run in. They go, and then Peter and James come. I'm John come in. And go, oh, Jesus is alive. He's alive. Meanwhile, the guards are going, what are these idiots doing running in and out of that tomb going, oh, what's going on, right? Or maybe the guards are guarding the wrong tomb. He says, you know, we've been guarding this for a long time. But I, I mean, come on. If you owned a tomb in those days, you only had one tomb, right? Because they would share tombs. They'd put people in the tomb, and then they, when, they're, when they're, their flesh had decayed, they'd take their bones and put them in a bone box, and they'd put the next person in. And if you're rich enough, you could put two people in at the same time, right? And so... There's no way that Joseph of Arimathea, who is a Christian, who became a Christian, would have gotten the tomb wrong. And remember, 
How did he get in the tomb? Well, they baited his body and they covered it with spices and they put it in the tomb. I mean, if your mom had died, would you forget where you buried her? <laughs> the minimal facts kind of refute the wrong tomb altogether. Okay, let's go to the next one. The next one is one that I've gotten a lot. They said, well, no, Neil, it was moved by the Jews and all the Romans. I mean, this is what happened, right? The Jews and the Romans said, look, he's, they're going to come and claim he's, he's alive, so we're just going to move it. Well, yeah, I said, well, in that case, what would they do? They'd come and people say, well, Jesus is alive. They're almost just go, no, no, we just moved it, you idiots. But they didn't do that. They said, no, you guys stole it. Why would they say you stole it if it had been moved? Right? So it wouldn't make sense. And the easiest way for them to get rid of this religion is grab the body of Jesus, put it on a cart, and truck it down Main Street. Now, somebody said, well, maybe they threw it away, and they shouldn't have, and they didn't want to... Uh, <laughs> they want to confess. I said, no, they were the people in power. So, of course, that works. It doesn't work. And, and there's a bunch of theories here. I mean, a bunch of minimal facts refutes all that, right? Okay. I like this one. This was the hallucination theory. Some people there suggested that Peter hallucinated. John hallucinated. The... Uh, 12 hallucinated, Paul hallucinated, and all the Marys hallucinated. Now, I know that uh, back in the 60s, they weren't getting stoned. They thought that maybe uh, James and Stephen and Paul got stoned, too. Different kind of stoning. <laughs> um, and, and I realized that Peter, Paul, and Mary also probably got stoned. But they were singers in the 60s. I think Paul became a Christian, too. And the problem is that 500 people saw Jesus risen. And uh, uh, psychologists will tell you if two people see the same thing and they can be independently verified, it's not a hallucination. Because there is no such thing as a mass hallucination where the details match. And also they weren't saying, you know, this is the... <laughs> and they weren't saying that they had seen Jesus in a vision. They were saying, we touched him, we talked to him, we ate with him, right? And they had experience with the risen Jesus. And James, the brother of Jesus, wasn't used to taking drugs. So never mind. <laughs> and he was, became a Christian, right? So this is converted, this is refuted by 12 things. I mean, three things. So uh, the next one is one of my favorite theories. It's called the Dave theory. Now, I, this is a bit of an old reference. Uh, how many people saw the movie Dave? Very old movie. Um, you know, um, it's, it, it was actually proposed... Uh, in the movie, basically, there's a guy who looks just like the president. The president is an evil Republican. And this other guy is a nice, wonderful, loving Democrat. And the president gets sick. And so they replace him with this wonderful guy. And he gives money to everybody and everybody's happy. Yeah, that works. You know, socialism is great until you run out of other people's money, right? <laughs> It's worked so well in Venezuela, yes. Okay, anyway, sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know I can't help but put in something about politics there, right? Anyway, um, I'm not endorsing either party, especially this year. Okay, um, anyway, so the idea basically is that Jesus had a twin brother. 
But here's the problem. If Jesus had the twin brother, surely Mary would have known that, and she was a believer. James would have known that, right? So, okay, because that doesn't work. So a uh, uh, professor called Greg Cavan uh, came up, Robert Cavan came up with this, Robert Greg Cavan. He came up with this, and he said, okay, this is the only way it would work. You see, let's go back to the birth of Jesus. Jesus was in a cave, and it was very dark. And next to him were these two twins, and I've just called them Jeter and Dieter. <laughs> I have no idea why. And in the darkness of the tomb, uh, sorry, of the, of the cave where he was born, somehow Dieter got switched to Jesus. <laughs> so now we have Dieter, who's an identical twin of Jeter, and Jesus and Jeter growing up somewhere else, not realizing that they're not really twins. Well, they don't look alike. They think they're just fraternal twins, right? Um, and uh, meanwhile, Jesus, the person who is Dieter, who is thinks he's Jesus, is growing up in Nazareth and becomes the Messiah and gets crucified for his preaching love because that's all he ever preached, right? So here he is crucified and that morning for some strange reason, Jeter and Jesus, who thinks his name is Dieter, are walking down the street and they see Dieter on the cross. And Jeter says to Jesus, you know, that guy looks just like me. I have an idea to make money and power and blind faith followers. I will pretend to be that guy on the cross named Jesus. And people think I rose from the dead. Anyone buying this? <laughs> so then, I remember Greg, uh, Robert Caving is an expert on New Testament. Right? He's not a Christian. He's an atheist, in fact. But he's an expert on this. And this is the only thing he could come up with, right? So he says, this is the only way it would work. So he says, and then, of course, everybody thinks that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, the only problem that I think is, here's Jeter, right, who thinks he's, I mean, Jeter, who's pretending to be Jeter, who is, uh, who's walking around. He goes, oh, you must be my mother. No, I'm your aunt. Oh, sorry. You must be my brother. No, I'm John, your disciple. Oh, you must be Peter. No, I'm actually James, right? He knows everybody automatically. He, he doesn't know anybody. He doesn't know what they were teaching. He has no idea what was going on. He just kind of showed up on the scene. I'm not buying it either. And besides, I don't know about you, but if you have twins in the family and you have a sibling, the sibling immediately knows which twin is twin, which, right? So James, the brother of Jesus, like, uh, you know, you look like Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. So the last theory is the only one that's left. And by the way, I've gone through all of these theories, and you can go through, and all these theories fall into one of these categories. And if you can come up with another one, this is how the detectives do it. In fact, James Warren Wallace does a great job on this, going through all these theories. <clears throat> so the last theory is the swoon theory. And the swoon theory is, is basically maybe Jesus was not dead. Maybe he fainted like Romeo and Juliet, right? You know, he was given a drug, and he was on the cross. I, I, this is, somebody wrote a book called The Passover Plot. I call it the Monty Python theory. You know, bring out your dead. I'm not dead yet. I feel happy. I want to go for a walk. <laughs> oh, you know, when they spin because it's just a flesh wound. <laughs> but they don't understand the concept of crucifixion. They don't understand the details of crucifixion. So let's go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, some of us might think, oh, yeah, they're just using creative language. But no, this is actually a real condition. It's called hematidrosis, where 
it's associated with high psychological stress, and it happens in severe anxiety, causes the release of internal chemicals that break down the capillaries into the sweat, uh, of the blood into the, in the sweat glands. And as a result, you bleed, you, you bleed into your sweat glands, and your sweat glands sweat blood. And you would be dripping, or you'd have a thin layer of blood all over. And if you want to see what that looks like, there is a person who has hematidrosis. Here's one that has one from her head. And this is even more heartbreaking because not only does Jesus in great mental anguish, but the next day, this condition makes her skin so tender and fragile that the next day, he's subject to 39 lashes by a Roman guard. Now, history tells us that the Roman 39 lashes were from a whip of braided leather tongs with metal balls and bone woven into them. When the whip would strike the flesh, these balls would cause deep bruises and the bones would cut, and the bone in the whip would cut the flesh severely. If the soldier doing the whipping was in a foul mood, then the cuts and the intensity of the whipping could shred the victim's back so much that it would expose the skin and and the flesh under the skin as they whipped all the way down to his leg. One physician who has studied Roman beatings said, as the flogging continues, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and pr- produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Eusebius, a third century historian, says the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Isaiah 53 says, he was beaten for our transgressions and by his stripes we were healed. And this was written 700 years before Christ. As a result of this, Jesus would go into what we call hypovolemic shock. What is hypovolemic shock? Hypovolemic shock happens when you lose large amounts of, amounts of blood, right? You don't have enough blood. So the heart races to try and pump blood that isn't there. Two, blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapsing. The kidney stops producing urine to try and maintain what liquid is left in the body. And the person becomes extremely thirsty as the body craves fluids to replace the lost blood volume. And remember, Psalms, the prophecy of, the, of this passage says, my strength is dried up like a spot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And you remember what happens to Jesus as he's climbing up the mountain to Golgotha. What? He stumbles and falls, and he almost faints. Why? Because he's suffering from hypervolemic shock. And then when he gets to the mountain, Jesus says what? He says, after this, Jesus said, I thirst. He was in pain, and he was in serious critical condition for you and for me. And when Jesus got to Golgotha, the place where he was to be crucified, the soldiers tied his arms and his leg to the cross and then nailed him. Now, we think, a lot of people say he was nailed in his palms, but not here, he was nailed right here. Why? Because if you nail here, it'll rip right off. And it was important that the, hand, that the hands held you in place. Now, I want you to push right here. There's something called a median nerve right there. It's still in your palm, but it's really part of your wrist. And this is what it looks like in there. And nailing through this wrist does one other thing. It hits that medium nerve just like that. Medium nerve is like your funny bone nerve. And it creates that horrible sensation. And that nail in there, every time he moved that hand, it would rub against that nerve. Because the Romans knew how to create great pain. And so it would be equivalent of taking a pair of pliers and twisting your funny bone nerve. In fact, the pain for this was so unbearable that they created a name for it. The name was excruciating, which means out of the cross. And then they do the same thing with the other hand, and then his feet. 
And the Bible says, again, written hundreds of years before Christ, this is how the feet would go. They have pierced my hands and my feet. People didn't die easy from crucifixions. They weren't meant to. They were meant to suffer terribly at first and then die. They were meant to be an example to others so that no one else would ever dare to oppose the Romans. And when they were crucified, archaeologists tell what would have happened is they would have crucified him in this position, as you can see in this picture, and they would pull his arms out of their sockets, his shoulder sockets. And so he would fall forward like this. And in this position, you can't breathe because your lung, your chest is expanded. And again, this was prophesied in Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. And then they'd raise a cross and it would be dropped into a stand. And as he fall, fell forward, the only way you can breathe on the cross is what? You can't pull yourself up. Why? Because of the pain here and the fact that your bones are not, your shoulders or sockets are dislocated. The only way you could do is push yourself up on that nail on the bottom, release the pressure on your lungs, and then you could take a breath. And then you'd fall back again from the pain and the agony and the exhaustion. Finally, with the pressure on his chest eased, Jesus would have been able to exhale. But then the strain and pain of holding himself up would tire him out, and he would go down again and then do it over and over and over again. In fact, if you recall, the soldiers came by and they broke the legs of the two thieves. Why did they break the legs of the two thieves? Because then you can't push yourself up. And you suffocate and die within minutes. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Or was he really? Maybe he had just swooned. So then how did he die? Obviously he didn't die from suffocation. Now remember, if you are dead, if you, let's say you fall unconscious when you're on the cross, what would happen to you? You would die because you can't push yourself up to breathe, right? So any sort of unconsciousness, any sort of failure, exhaustion would kill you. So did Jesus die because he can't fake it on the cross? Any small movement they would have seen. Well, what would have happened is as his breathing slowed down, our Lord would have gone into respiratory acidosis, which means that the carbon dioxide that he couldn't exhale would be dissolved back into his blood. That would cause the acidity of his blood to increase. This would lead to an irregular heartbeat. Jesus would have felt his heart become erratic and he would have known the moment of his death. At which point he says what? Father, into your hands. It is finished, Father, into your hands. I commend my spirit. And then he dies of cardiac arrest, of a broken heart. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the sin of us all. Jesus was dead. There's no way he would have survived. And then Luke says, in the sixth hour there was darkness over the land, all of the earth, until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened. And Matthew says, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom of the earth, quaked, and the rocks were split. Joel says on that day, this is a prophecy 500 years before Christ, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved for on Mount Zion in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. Now you go, well that's just prophetic pictures that really happened. Because if you go and look at the position of the sun and the moon, there's no way we could have had an eclipse. 
for the sky to darken. There's no way that could have happened. But if you look at the historian Fliegen Trillinus, he says in his Olympiads history, he says in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, AD 33, a failure of the sun took place greater than any previously known, and the night came on at the sixth hour of the day. That's noon. So the stars actually appeared in the sky, and a great earthquake took place in Bithia and threw overthrew the greater part of Nicaea. Here is a non-Christian Roman historian confirming the prophecy of Joel and what Matthew Now, how do we know he was dead? Well, well, Roman historians say that it took four executioners to verify that Jesus was dead, right? So what they do is they walk up to him and they stick a spear in his side. See if he moves. Make sure he's really dead. And John, who's a fisherman, by the way, notes that blood and water gush out. Now, not knowing anything else, a doctor can tell you that this person was probably dead. And he can tell you what the person probably died of. Heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart detected by the presence of fluid in the pericardium. You see, what happens is if your heart is beating, all that plasma and blood all mix up together, and that plasma is kind of white. But if your heart stops beating, or if you have blood in your leg or something, uh, if you get gangrene, what will happen is the blood will separate from the plasma, and you'll have some white fluid coming out. And that can happen if you don't get any circulation to your leg. But when it happens around your chest, that means your heart is not producing any blood or not mixing the blood up in that area. And not only does it tell you that the person is dead, but it tells you that he's been dead for some time. When they came to break his legs, when they came to pierce him, he was probably dead for a few hours at least by that time. And this plasma or this water fluid is very waxy looking. Now, Given all that, the death blow of the theory that Jesus didn't die but soon was delivered strangely enough by an opponent for Christianity named David Strauss. David Strauss is an atheist. And he says, look, I know you love the soon theory, but it's not going to work. Here's why it's not going to work. Right? He says this. He says, it is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher, that's a tomb, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was conqueror over death and the grave and the prince of life. Right? An impression which lay at the bottom of their future ministry. I want you to imagine Jesus somehow managed to survive the crucifixion. They watch him bury him. He doesn't move at all, right? Because he's out. And then they put him in the tomb. He sort of wakes up. He kind of groggily wakes up. He goes, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? He moves the massive stone. He fights the Romans. He marches into town on broken feet. Right? He's bleeding all over. And he shows up at the door and the disciples look at him and they go, oh! No, they'll say, he's not dead yet. Get a doctor. <laughs> it's impossible, says David Strauss. It's impossible that this would happen. And this wasn't just an empty grave. What? The disciples said what? The disciples said they'd seen him. They'd touched him. They'd watched him eat. And they saw him ascend into heaven. And then they died with that person. And they taught it to their disciples. In fact, the actual disciples of the apostles, Clement of Rome, one of Peter's own disciples, says that Peter told him twice personally, I saw him alive. Right? Polycarp, a disciple of John, personally, he says, John told me six times personally that he personally saw Jesus alive. 
and that he was willing to die for it. So the minimal facts just refute this, because all these facts, these three facts, they know this is not a swoon theory possibility. So the swoon theory is gone. And if you look through all this and you realize, well, maybe it was a supernatural thing. Maybe something supernatural happened. Now you go, wait a minute, how can I jump to the supernatural? I'm not jumping to the supernatural. Remember, we've already established that it's more rational to think that God exists using science. Right? We've already established that up to six supernatural dimensions exist using science, that Jesus existed, and the minimal facts are true. We've already established that the supernatural is possible. Now, let me ask you this. If you can create an entire universe, which is the most amazing miracle in the world, how measly is a miracle just bringing somebody back to life? It's easy for God, but not for you. And so, given all this and the elimination of all possible solutions, we're left with only one option. The resurrection. He is risen. You see, I believe Christianity isn't a blind faith. It's a rational faith built on a solid historical and logical foundation. The grave was empty because Jesus Christ is risen. And 500 people claimed that. I want you to watch this video here. It's a bit, it's taken from the Passion. So if you think your kids can't handle it or you can't handle it, you may want to close your eyes. Uh, it's a beautiful song set to that. And I want to take it. Hopefully we'll, we weren't sure if this worked. If you turn on the lights too. I carry my cross and I carry the shame. 
Jesus said, I am God. And I'll prove that to you by dying and then rising from the dead. By doing something that cannot be faked by anybody and can't be done by anyone else, he proved that he was God. If he is God, then what he says is very important, doesn't it? If he is God, then when he said that people who don't believe in him won't be with him in heaven, that's important. And the reason they won't be in heaven is because they don't want to spend eternity in his presence. In addition, if he is the creator, we will never find purpose or satisfaction in our lives until we do what we were designed to do, and that is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. See, it's a central gospel, the message that Jesus preaches that we have rebelled against him, against God. We've abandoned God. We are sinners, and we deserve punishment from God. But he so loved us. That he has taken that punishment and that debt for us on that cross so that we don't have to be separated from God. But you have to accept that payment. You have to understand that payment. If you're going to have peace, peace and purpose in your life, you're going to have to live for him because it doesn't work any other way. 
when I started, I noticed that an atheist asked, what do you tell a child that is dying from disease? I say, tough luck, God gave you this. Or do you tell them, this is not the end? Caroline Lois Marmon, nine days in neo-intensive, natal intensive care, and she died in my arms. From our father's arms, from my arms, her father's arms, to our father's arms. Folks, if there is no resurrection of the dead, we have no hope. This vast expanse of graves that we see in this picture, this whole expanse, you go out there and you see the graves. It's the end of dreams, the end of hope, the end of life, the end of you, the end of me. It, life has no meaning if Christ did not rise from the dead. But Christ has indeed risen from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, a few years ago, and by the way, I cannot escape this conclusion as a scientist. I remember working through this and going, it's like being, every time I come up with an objection, I'm beaten down with the facts. A few years ago, after Caroline died, my older daughter, Mary Catherine, she was three at six at the time, three when Caroline died, we were driving down, I remember vividly this event, we were driving down the road and she's in the back seat, she says, Dad, what was it when Caroline died? Was it like falling asleep? At first, I didn't want her to be scared of death, so I said, yeah, yeah, it's like falling asleep. But then I said, no. You see, I realize if there are ten dimensions, and we only experience four of them now, today after this you'll go out and probably eat lunch. You're just going to enjoy that lunch. Let's say you love pizza, and you're going to enjoy that pizza in four dimensions. I want you to imagine a six-dimensional taste of pizza, or a ten-dimensional taste of pizza. You'll listen to some beautiful music. In fact, the, uh, the choir came up, I mean, the uh, band came up, and we listened to beautiful music, and you'll listen to Beethoven or Mozart, and you're going to listen to that in three or four-dimensional sound. Imagine ten-dimensional music. Colors. You look out there, and you see colors. You just see them in three dimensions. Imagine ten-dimensional colors. Today we have four-dimensional relationships. Then we will have ten-dimensional relationships. And I said to Mary Catherine, no, it's not like falling asleep. It's like waking up. You see, death is not the end game. He is risen. 